In the first century, there existed something known as the emperor cult, where Caesar was considered Lord. If you traveled from this town to another town, when you entered the city gates of that other town, you would have to acknowledge, perhaps if they had a fire, you might have to take a pinch of incense and throw on it and say, Caesar is Lord. Or you would have to bow as you pass this statue that was everywhere, statues of Caesar, monuments to Caesar, the, the Lord. On the coins of the first century was inscribed those words that Caesar was considered to be God. He was considered to be the savior of the empire. He was considered to be the dispenser of justice and the dispenser of peace. You may find it strange that Christians were considered atheists in the first century because the Christians did not recognize all the Roman gods. They had this very simple confession, not Kaiser Curios, Caesar is Lord, but they said Curios Christos, Christ is Lord, Jesus is Lord. I wonder if we think carefully enough about that statement, Jesus is Lord. I want us to think about it today. Let's pray. May our hearts be receptive, O Lord, now to your word. May we understand the impact and the implications of what it means to know you, Lord Jesus as Lord of our lives, as Lord of the church, as Lord of lords, as Lord of all. May we realize that self is not Lord and the government is not Lord, but you, Lord Jesus, are Lord of all and give us courage to both say that and live that, whatever that might mean for us in our day. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to read Philippians 2, verses 3 through 11. And then a passage in Revelation chapter 19. And then we're going to begin a little study on the great confession that is perhaps the simplest Christian confession there is. Jesus is Lord. So in Philippians 2, beginning at verse 3, we find these words from the Holy Spirit. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, Let each esteem others better than themselves. That would fix most church problems, wouldn't it? That would fix most family problems. If we had a lowly, humble spirit and we esteemed others and didn't demand our way and our rights. It is to be certainly true in Christ's church and it was to be true in this church that this letter went to originally. Esteem others better than yourself. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this 
mind, this mindset, this attitude be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself. He humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. What a passage. What a passage. One day every knee will bow and say, you, Lord Jesus, are the rightful master of all things. We say it now, don't we? We say it gladly now. Jesus is Lord. One day all will say it. Demons will say it. Holy angels will say it. Those in heaven will say it. Those in hell will say it. They will say Jesus is Lord. They will acknowledge his rightful lordship, his rightful authority, his messianic credentials and his messianic office. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that. Of course, it will be too late for many when they confess that, but they will confess it nonetheless. And that great truth of Jesus being the very son of God and equal with God and yet humbling himself and coming down into this world, taking the form of a servant and made one of us a man And then going even further down to the death and shameful treatment of the cross. And from this low humility, God has now raised him up to the highest place, exalted him and given him this name above every name. He is Lord. And we're told here that this is to be how we operate. If Jesus humbled himself and took the form of a servant, we're to have this same mindset. And we remember in another place, Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. Just as our father did with his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're, to, we're not to be arrogant. We're not to be puffed up. We're to seek, as our Lord did, the low place. And God always humbles the proud, and he always exalts the humble. It's the way it works. If we humble ourselves in due time, God will exalt his church that walks humbly with him here below. If we lift ourselves up in arrogance and pride, vain glory and strife, as verse 3 says, God will see to it that we are in time humbled. So that is the great passage that we begin our thoughts with. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Turn to Revelation 19. If you would, in your Bible now, Revelation 19, this is at the end of human history, and we see a great unveiling, a great event happening at the end of the book of Revelation, at the end of human history, as we would know it. We see heaven opened and one appearing. Let's read now verse 11. Verse 11. 
And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. He came the first time as a lowly baby, laid in a manger, with no room in the inn and only a few shepherds to look in on him and see him. This second advent, his second coming, he comes back as a mighty warrior to judge and to make war. He is going to judge a world that is loyal to the Antichrist, that is loyal to Satan. And he is going to declare war on them and execute judgment on a rebel world. His eyes were as a flame of fire. And on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture, a robe, dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. This is our Lord Jesus Christ. He is Lord. He is the Lord of all lords. So I want us to go in our mind now and think about this one that we've come together today to worship. From every angle that we look at him, he's beautiful, and I feel so unworthy to stand here and even speak of him today because I do not do him justice. And yet I will try to say true words about him, and I will say prayerful, prayerfully that you will hear and will think better things than I can even say. He is Lord. The word Lord is kurios. It means owner. It means master. It is a word that describes a person who possesses the power of deciding. He can decide on what he wants to do, and whatever he decides to do is, is his rightful choice because he's Lord. He owns all things, and therefore he can do with and dispose of or, or organize or send or withhold whatever he chooses to do because he's Lord. He doesn't have an advisory council that advises him what to do because he has all knowledge and all wisdom. The only advisory council is the Father, Son, and the Spirit, and they don't need our counsel, do they? So we come today to recognize the Lordship of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one in control. You remember in Matthew 28, 18, just before he gives the Great Commission, to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, he prefaces that great commission with these words, Matthew 28, 18, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. All authority, Jesus says, has been granted to me by his Father. Heavenly and earthly authority is mine. And here, here now I tell you, he says to his disciples, in my name and with my authority and with my presence 
on you. Go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations. He has all authority. He is Lord. So consider some of the things that we might think about his lordship. He is Lord of the weather. We've seen some strange weather this uh, week across our country. We've been socked in here with the rain, and yet we've seen so many under snow and ice and just frigid conditions. And I remembered Psalm 148, 8 says, fire and hail, snow and clouds, stormy wind fulfilling his word. So the lightning, the hail, the the clouds, the wind, they're doing what God tells them to do. Psalm 148.8, fire and hail, snow and mist, vapor, stormy wind fulfilling his word. Perhaps uh, there was a Jonah running away from God. Remember God sent out a great storm and the men thought they were going to drown. They began to lighten the ship and throw everything overboard. Maybe God was sending out some storms this week to, to get some Jonah's attention to bring back some uh, rebels, to bring back some that were running away. God's son, the Lord Jesus, is Lord over the weather. In Matthew 8, he's asleep on a boat, and they wake him up, and they say, we're about to drown. Do something if you can. And he says to the wind and to the sea, peace be still. And they marvel that there's a great calm. And they say, what manner of man is this that even the winds... And the sea obey him. Who can command the wind? Who can control the waves? Well, Jesus can just with a command. The the clouds are his. The sun is his. The wind is his. The jet stream is his. The dust is his. The water is his. He is Lord. And he continues to baffle the weather men. (laughs) Don't he? And they've gotten better at predicting the weather. I've noticed. I remember as, uh, years ago, they would just about miss it more than they'd get it. But they're getting better, I think, with computer models and satellites and so forth. They seem to be a little bit better at predicting somewhat. But he still baffles them at times. The Lord is the weather maker. He is Lord over the weather. He's Lord over nature. Lord over nature. Uh, You open your Bible, you first crack your Bible to Genesis chapter 1. And what do we see? We see God calling into existence things which didn't exist previously. Uh, The Latin term is ex nihilo, out of nothing. He didn't go to the store and buy some materials and then build some things. He made the materials appear. He made out of nothing a universe And he begins to form it and fill it with life. He calls forth light. Let there be light. And there was light. He separates the light from the dark. He calls the day, the light day. And he calls the dark night. He makes the dry land appear. He gathers the waters into one place. He fills the seas with life. And he fills the skies with life. And he does all this because he's Lord over all of life and all of nature. And then we see in the next book over, the book of Exodus, we see 
in the plagues of Egypt. Remember the 10 plagues when God is bringing his people out of Egypt? We see his, his lordship over nature. He, he turns water to blood. He turns the river Nile, the very lifeblood of Egypt. He turns that water into blood. He judges Egypt. He turns water to blood. He sends frogs upon the land so that the frogs are in their beds and their kneading troughs. He sends flies. He causes the cattle to be diseased. God sends these as judgments upon Egypt and upon Egypt's gods. Egypt claimed to have gods over all the, over their livestock and over their river and over the sun and so forth. And God is showing his supremacy over the false gods of Egypt by judging these things that they ascribed deity to. How can he do such a thing? He is Lord over nature, isn't he? He caused the sun to go dark. The darkness for three days, it says, so dark it could be felt. But it says there was light in the Israelites' dwellings. How can he do that? How do you explain that? I think you say like this. You say God made natural laws, and normally things work according to natural laws. But at times, God can suspend those natural laws and do what we call a miracle. Do things that you can't explain. Do things that are outside of and what looks to us to be contrary to natural laws. Uh, one day, uh, we're going to fly. Did you know that? I've always thought I'd like to fly. I don't mean an airplane or a helicopter flight, but one day, the people of God are going to fly. We're going to be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. And we're going to break a natural law when we do that. We can't fly. That doesn't happen. But a miracle is going to happen on that day. With a glorified body and with an attraction to the Lord Jesus like the steel to a magnet. He's going to call us up and we're going to go to him and we're going to meet him in the air. And that'll be a miracle. And that'll be a violation of a natural law. And yet he's going to make it happen because he is Lord. When he raises the dead... That will be a miracle. Dead things don't rise. They die and they decay. But our Lord, who is Lord over nature, will cause the dead to rise. He is Lord over nature. We see it all through the scriptures. He makes a a fish to swim near the boat. It says the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah. And one preacher said, maybe it happened like this. The Lord said to the fish... Swim next to that boat, and when you see a splash, that's your lunch. Swallow it. And he did. He prepared that fish to swallow Jonah, and yet the miracle was Jonah didn't die. The Lord preserved him alive in that fish. And after three days, he would be vomited out on dry ground, and Jonah was then ready to do what God said to do. God made a fish swallow a coin. In the New Testament, and then he caused that fish to bite Simon Peter's fish hook when Peter cast his hook into the water. And Peter took the fish out, pulled the coin out of its mouth, and went and paid his temple tax with it. This was the Lord Jesus controlling all of nature from fish that are big enough to swallow a man to a fish that will swallow a coin and then bite a hook. He made the rooster crow right on cue when Peter denied the Lord. 
He cursed a fig tree instantly, and the fig tree withered. He turned water to wine instantly. He made loaves of bread multiply instantly. You know, you didn't have to plant it, harvest the grain, crush it, bake it, make a loaf of bread. He just made all that happen. He just cut out all the middle steps and just made it happen from loaf to loaf instantly. He's Lord over nature. I'm talking about our Lord today. Can we trust such a one? Can we put our confidence in him and not have the slightest reservation in doing so? He is Lord. He is Lord over all things. The weather, nature. Number three, he's Lord over nations. The nations of the world. Amen. Psalm 2 Don't turn there, but just I'll give you the quick summary of it. The nations of the world are conspiring together. They're going to throw off the bands of Christ and the authority of God's word. They're going to ultimately rebel against God. And it says they are of one mind to do so. So you've got a godless conspiracy to break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. They're raging against the Lord and against his anointed one. That's the Father and the Son. So what is God doing when the nations rage and conspire to overthrow his authority? It says, he who sits in the heavens is laughing. He's laughing. And it says, in spite of their plan, God will install his king, his son, upon the holy hill of Zion And he will rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And he will give all those nations to be a gift to Jesus who will rule them as his own. He will destroy with a rod of iron those that will not bow. And he will receive as an inheritance the nations of the world. That's coming. That's coming. So we look at our world today. What do we see? But we see a world with great technological advancements. Wow, I can't imagine this 20 years ago. The world we have now would never have thought of the things we can do now. But a world that's morally and spiritually bankrupt and perverse, defiant, hostile, vicious, We've lost all civility. We've lost all manners. We've lost all any sense of kindness. Uh, common courtesy, we used to call it, is not so common anymore, is it? Men and women are, are like vicious, bloodthirsty animals. Just quick and ready to pounce and ready to devour one another. We've got all this technology and we've got no... Grace for one another. We've got little shriveled up hearts. I'm speaking of the world in general, a world that is defiant and and pagan, a pagan world. And yet, Jesus Christ is Lord. He is Lord over the nations, and one day he's going to bring the nations into submission to his lordship with a sharp sword or with the rod of iron. 
or whatever he chooses to do, he will rule as Lord over all lords and king over all kings. He's Lord over nations. Turn to Isaiah 40, verse 15. Isaiah 40, verse 15. We read here, Behold, the nations are as a drop of a bucket and are counted as the small dust of the balance. He taketh up the isles as a very little thing. And so all the nations of the world are like a drop of water in a bucket. They're like the small dust on the balance. All of them together cannot thwart God. They cannot thwart his purposes. They are nothing compared to him. And Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor the beasts thereof sufficient for a burnt offering. All nations before him are as nothing, and they are counted to him less than nothing and vanity. We live in a blessed nation. We live here under God's providence. God allowed us to be born at this time. And God has allowed and decreed that we live at this, in this place. But we're nothing compared to God. We cannot fight successfully against God. We cannot thwart his plans. We cannot hinder his purposes. He judged mighty nations before us. And he will and is likely judging us now and will judge us in the future as a nation. And I am thankful to be a part of a nation such as this, but my first loyalty is not to America. Our first loyalty is to be to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's our Lord. Someone, have, numerous people really have asked, uh, with, a, with a country such as ours and the greatness that we have seen and the prosperity we have seen, why do we not see any mention in any prophetic scriptures, any hint even of such a nation as ours mentioned in the last days or in the millennium or anything up, uh, coming connected with Christ's return. And well, I, I guess that's normal for Americans to ask such a question. Where are we at in there? We're so great. Where are we at in there? Maybe we're not as great as we think we are. Or maybe we don't exist when Jesus comes back. Maybe we've already fizzled out and caved in and crashed and burned because of our foolishness and our rebellion against God. Maybe he allowed us to self-destruct. Maybe that's why. I don't know that, and I'm not wishing for that. I'm not hoping for that. I'm not prophesying. I'm just speculating there. I'm saying, however, this with conviction. Jesus is Lord over all nations. And blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, Psalm says. And the wicked shall be turned into hell and all the nations that forget God. So we may have an economy and a military and a, a history that is uh, remarkable, but we cannot defy God and prosper. We cannot defy the laws and commandments and will of God and succeed. And so let us pray, always pray for our country, for our leaders, and most of all for the gospel to flourish in such a place. So that people can see that Jesus is Lord over all nations 
And he alone is worthy. In Habakkuk chapter 1, you don't have to turn there, but Habakkuk 1, 6, God says, Behold, I raise up the Chaldeans. God raised up the Babylonians that they might be the tool that he would use to humble Israel because Israel had become apostate and wayward and defiant. And so God raises up this vicious and cruel and godless nation, the Babylonians, and he lets them overrun Israel. And then he says, I will in due time humble the Babylonians. They will get theirs as well. God is truly a God of justice. And as Christians, we say hallelujah for God's justice because the justice of God means our salvation, we who have believed on Christ. The justice of God fell on Jesus. And Jesus received the justice that my sins deserved. And so I praise God for his justice because justice leads to total forgiveness for the one that believes on the Lord Jesus Christ. God is just and the justifier of who he who believes on Christ, Romans 3 says. But God is the Lord of nations. He can raise up a nation like the Babylonians to judge another nation like Israel, and then he can put down the Babylonians. That's Habakkuk 1. Isaiah 10 is another similar passage. Isaiah 10 speaks of a, a woodsman who goes into the woods with an ax, and he takes that ax and he fells a tree with it. And he says, can you imagine an ax boasting itself against the woodsman? That ax is just a tool. It's the woodsman that's doing the work. Can you imagine how foolish it would be if that ax were to lift itself up and say, look what I have done. The ax did nothing. It was the one who wielded the ax. And Isaiah 10 verse 15, God makes that very charge. He says, I have raised up the Assyrians, this stout hearted and vicious nation, the Assyrians. And they boast great things. They say, look at what we have done. We've conquered this nation and we've conquered that nation. And God says to them, you're just an ax. You were my tool to do what you did and you shouldn't be boasting against me. And then he said, or shall the saw magnify itself against him who saws? Or should the rod shake itself against him who lifts it up? So Assyria was nothing more than an instrument of the Lord. Assyria had no power or wisdom of its own. It was God who raised up this nation to accomplish his divine purposes among the nations. And then God would judge the Assyrians just as, just as he would later on the Babylonians. Because Jesus is Lord over nations. Number four, he's Lord over the leaders and rulers of nations. Not just the general welfare of the nation, but those that he lifts up to be in positions of high authority in the nations. Daniel chapter 2 is our text. Daniel 2.20. Daniel 2 and verse 20. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever. For wisdom and might are his. And he changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to them that know understanding. He reveals the deep and secret things. He knows what's in the darkness and the light dwells with him. And so God 
would raise up a Nebuchadnezzar and he'd put him down. He'd raise up a Alexander the Great and he'd put him down. He'd raise up a Herod and put him down. Julius Caesar and put him down. Tiberius Caesar and put him down. And all the Roman emperors were there by the providence of God. And I don't know all of what that means and how that all works out. But I know Romans 13 says there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Romans 13.1. And I know that same book, Romans 9, says, verse 17, that God raised up Pharaoh for this one purpose, that he might show his power when he judged Pharaoh. That's what Romans 9.17 says. God raises up Pharaoh that he might display his power when he brings down Pharaoh and all the great Egyptian dynasty. So, Our Lord is Lord over nations and their leaders and rulers. Does this comfort you today? Amen. Me too. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. As the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wants. He turns the king's heart as he wants to turn it. So that that king is responsible for what he does. If he's a wicked and godless and defiant king, he will answer for that. And yet, he only is allowed to do what God uses him to do. And both of those truths are real. The sovereignty of God over kings and the responsibility of kings for what they decide to do. God turns their hearts as he wills. He can put in Cyrus's heart to let Israel go back and build the temple again. Or whatever he wants to do, he can do it. He's Lord over the rulers and the nations. In John 19, 11, Jesus says to Pilate, the Roman governor, when Pilate asks him, Are you not going to speak to me? Don't you know that I have the power to crucify you or I have the power to release you? And Jesus says these words, you have no power at all against me except what was given you from above. Roman governor, you're only doing what God is allowing you to do. And so apparently... I say, based on this passage and others, that even the worst evil imaginable is under the sovereignty of God. What was about to happen here was Jesus was about to be whipped and scourged with a cat of nine tails, a brutal brutal beating, then he's going to be crucified. And yet Jesus says to him, you can only do what has been given you to do. So I take from that even the worst evil imaginable falls under this great big category of God's sovereign control as Lord over all things. He is Lord. He is Lord of all. He is Lord of the weather. He's the Lord of nature, the Lord of nations, the Lord of those rulers of the nations. There's coming an event not known as to the 
definite time, but there's coming a definite event, whatever the time element may be, called the judgment. Guess who's going to judge all men and all women? Turn to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. And listen to what the Lord Jesus says here. John 5, verse, let's, let's start at verse 21. For as the Father raises up the dead and quickens them, he gives them life, even so the Son quickens whom he will. For the Father judges no man, but hath committed all judgment to the Son, that all men should honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He that honoreth not the Son honors not the Father which hath sent him. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that hears my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but is passed from death unto life. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself, and hath given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in the which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice and shall come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. I can of my own self do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not mine own will, but the will of the Father which hath sent me. And so the Lord Jesus so closely united to the Father that he would not act independently or by himself. He would only do what the Father assigned, appointed him to do. There was no self-will in the Savior. He said, I will not do of my own will anything. I will hear and I will judge and do my Father's bidding. And he has appointed me to judge. So think of that, beloved. Think of that. The Lord Jesus, Jesus is Lord, and he is Lord over the judgment that is to come. I think about how men speak of Jesus today. I think about how little worth is ascribed to Jesus. He's mocked, his word is mocked and belittled, his church is a laughing stock in the world. What will it be when one day the heaven rolls back like a scroll and on a great white throne there is Jesus and the mocking world will stand at his feet and be judged by him with a righteous judgment. He is Lord. And we will be with him. We fall into verse 24 there. We, he says, truly, truly, verily, verily, amen, amen, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes on him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but is already passed, already from death to life. And there's two resurrections there, the resurrection of life and the resurrection of damnation. One is a blessed resurrection. One is a woeful resurrection. 
But who will be doing these things? Who will be resurrecting the dead? Who will be judging all men? It will be none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. The one that we read about in Revelation 19 with a robe splattered with blood and a sharp sword and a war horse and armies following him to execute his judgment and war upon this world. Right now, the world may know him as the meek and lowly Jesus, and he is meek and lowly to all who will have him. But one day, the table will turn, won't it? And he will be the conquering warrior, the authoritative and omniscient judge of all. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. He's Lord of judgment. Well, I've got about half of my message done. I'm going to stop and give you the other half next time, I think. Do you know whose you are? Do you know you've been bought with a price, Christian? If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus, you don't even belong to yourself anymore. We're not our own. We're bought with a price. We are to live our lives as Christians on the basis of this great truth that Jesus is Lord. Now in the first century that I described earlier with the emperor cult so prevalent, uh, we don't live in that world. We live under a constitutional republic, some say a democracy. So what might the temptation in our world be? Well, our world has this temptation We're lords. We're all lords. I will do what I want to do with my life because I'm the Lord of me. And don't you judge me. We hear that, don't we? Don't judge me. Because uh, I have the legitimate authority to be me, to do me. You do you, boo, and I'll do me. And you can't judge me because I'm me. And I'm the Lord of me. I'm the Lord of my body. I'm the Lord of my mouth. I'll say what I want. I'll look at what I want. I'll go where I want. I'll sleep with who and where I want. I'll be what I want to be because no longer do we live under Caesar. Now we live under a place where every man does what's right in his own eyes. And the temptation is for all of us to think that we're lords. But beloved, we may be far removed from the first century where they had to take a pinch of incense and say, Caesar is Lord, but we still live with the same temptation to live our daily lives as if, as if we're the Lord's and we're not. And so let us live out our baptisms, shall we? We died, we rose, and we have a new master. Even Jesus, the Christ, who is Lord of all.